Take your Bible and join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, where I hope to encourage you in the identity and the capacity of Jesus Christ the Lord. I've chosen this text to connect in part to what our pastor was saying last week in Ephesians chapter 5 on Father's Day, calling us, challenging us with the Word of God to remain faithful, to live as the people of God, to expose darkness, not live in it. And he rehearsed for us the really heartbreaking, sobering reality, the decline of our culture, the death of things that are good that we have come to appreciate and enjoy and perhaps take for granted. And I don't think any reasonable person can look into the future and at the trends that exist and actually believe that we're on a pathway to better days, fairer days, more enjoyable, more consistent with the values that we cherish and have come to enjoy and grieve the potential loss of. So my sermon today is meant to strengthen you for the storm. As storm clouds loom, and perhaps you're in one, it's not to say that everything negative is before us. Some of us are living in very difficult places and spaces. And it's in those places and spaces that God would have us remain faithful, steadfast. And I want to strengthen you with some convictions, life convictions, core convictions, lessons about our Lord who was just sung about, that when you anchor in those truths, in tough times, they will sustain you. They will strengthen you. They will help you be faithful when it's dark, when it's hard, when you're rowing for all you're worth, doing what you've been commissioned to do, and it feels like you're going nowhere, where you feel tormented, hopeless, helpless, you need to be strengthened in these convictions. So this message is to provide the concerned and the confused the weary in the way, disciples, ministry, servants, life, guidance, and comfort. On the merits of the life lessons provided to the disciples on a long, hard night, the passage we're about to read, that should inspire you, I hope, to consider the care, the concern, the capacity, and the priority that Jesus has for those who name his name. And I hope to lift your heart and to sustain you in the way. The passage we're about to read is the culmination of a series of training exercises. The disciples have been called to follow Jesus in Mark chapter 3, and they've been hearing words and witnessing works that are meant to communicate the identity and the potential and the capacity of Jesus Christ the Lord. And we come to Mark chapter 6, verse 45, after one of those works that is meant to punctuate the identity and the priority 
that disciples are to place upon the capacity of Jesus Christ in a difficult space with the feeding of the 5,000, which is the context. The disciples learn of their responsibility and of his great ability. Where are they going to get food to eat? And Jesus says to them in verse 37, you give them something to eat. Take what you have, however little it may be, five loaves, two fishes. And if you give it to me for them, I will take what you have and I will meet needs that you could never meet. Give me what you have. This is what I expect you to do with what I've entrusted to you. And he fed 5,000 men, then women and children, maybe up to 20,000. Twelve baskets were collected. Everybody was satisfied. That's the context. Verse 45, follow with me. Mark 6, staying faithful in the storm. Truths for tough times. And immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, and while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. Verse 52, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. I want to offer you a series of lessons from our Lord about our Lord. Critical core convictions about Him that must be established in your heart. A conviction is a compelling belief. It's not just something I give verbal assent to. It's something that compels me because I know it to be true. I believe it to be true. It is true. It is a reality that motivates me and sustains me. The realities in this passage that motivate and sustain, the life lessons to be learned are rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he can do, how he is, and how he relates to those who know his name and fulfill his purposes. I want you to imagine that after this event, you're debriefing Jesus and the disciples, and you're sitting together, and he's sitting with the men, because this is special forces training. These are the men that are commissioned. These are the men that are going to carry out the purposes of God when Jesus is ascended into heaven. They need to understand core truths because the mission they are sent upon which or on which they are sent is not an easy mission. It's a difficult mission. So imagine Jesus sitting with his disciples saying, these are lessons you need to learn about me. And these are life lessons you need to apply that relate to you. 
Lesson number one. Conviction number one. I am sovereign. Conviction number one. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is sovereign. Which means he has authority. Which means he is ruling. He is not just a servant. He is a king. He's not just a substitute. He's a majestic ruler who governs and controls. I want you to notice the words in verse 45. After the feeding of the 5,000 plus, he made his disciples get into the boat. Now, that's a, a strong, urgent, aggressive term. It's translated in other places, compelled, forced, command. I want you to get into the boat and row to the other side. And then further on in the verse 45, it concludes with he himself, which is an emphatic statement, Jesus himself, all by himself, with the authority he possesses in his identity, was sending the multitude away, literally dismissing them. Now, to appreciate the sovereign authority at work in those actions, dispatching the disciples, dismissing the multitudes, you need to have perspective from John's gospel, which is a parallel passage. Same event, different highlights of perspective offered for our benefit. Listen to John 6 as to the context of the expression of his authority. John 6, 14, and therefore, when the people saw the sign, now the sign is the feeding of the 5,000. A sign is a validation pointing to a reality, the validation of the identity, capacity, and deity of Christ. When they saw that sign, which he had performed, they said, this is of truth, the prophet a reference to the Messiah, the expected anointed one who has come into the world. John 6, 15, Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Context, when he dismissed them, they were trying to force him to accept a role that he wasn't ready to accept because it wasn't his will, his father's will. It wasn't the right time or in the right way. In other words, he rules. He has a plan. And that plan is not determined by the will of the people, but rather by the will of God. It was not their will that would be done. It was God's will that would be done. It was his will that would be done. He would say, I think, as they reflect on his dismissing them and dispatching the disciples, he would say, I have a time which is defined by the Father, not by the circumstances. I, have, I am sovereign. I am not a victim I am control, not the crowd or the culture. I have authority regardless of the majority or the will of the many. In other words, it's not happening the way they want it to happen. It's not happening the way you might want it to happen. It is happening the way I want it to happen. 
And that is a predestined plan. He constrained the disciples and he sent the multitude away, which is a way of saying, listen, I don't need you, the disciples, and I will not be forced by them, the multitude. I think the first training lesson that we need to recognize is that Jesus is ruling. He's controlling. He is defining. He himself is in charge. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And I think he would say to every would-be faithful disciple, I want you to recognize my rule. I want you to obey me because I rule everything. I'm a king in charge of everything. I have a time. I have a purpose. It is unfolding. Rest in my rule. No matter what you think, I don't need anything not you, not them, to accomplish my will. I have a plan. I have a time frame. I will work it out no matter the pressure or the challenge. I am sovereign, and I am working all things according to my sovereign plan. Don't be anxious. Be confident and be faithful. I want to punctuate just a little bit this reality because the Scriptures do. This reality that Jesus has a plan, a predestined, predetermined, I am sovereign and have authority over this plan. Listen to John 2 and verse 4 when Jesus says to his mother after she is appealing to him to address a wine shortage at a wedding, Jesus says to her, John 2 verse 4, dear woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. John 7, his family comes to him and appeals to him because of their perception. He wants to expose himself on the public stage. You go to Jerusalem to the feast, and Jesus says to his family, my time is not yet at hand. I do not go up to this feast, John 7 verse 8, I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. John 7, verse 29, to adversaries who didn't like him, saying, I know him, referring to his father, because I am from him, and he sent me. And they were seeking, therefore, to seize him. And no man laid a hand on him, listen, because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time. John 8, verse 19, in the treasury of the temple. The hearers didn't like him saying, in answer to the question, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. A plan, a sovereign plan, time, purpose, not just the process, but the progress, the when and the what, no matter who. And then that time frame changes. And in John verse 12, verse 23, John 12, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is Luke 9, 51. He came to pass that when the time was come, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. I am sovereign over path, purpose, time, plan. 
John 17, to the Father, the high priestly prayer, these things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said to the Father, the hour has come. At the right time, Paul said in Romans 5, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Right time implies design, purpose. It requires it. 1 Timothy chapter 2 Jesus Christ, verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Peter in Acts 2.23, the man you deliver this man you delivered up by the predetermined plan and knowledge of God. Jesus before Pilate in John chapter 19. Don't you know I have authority? To take your life, Pilate says, Jesus said, you would have no authority unless it was given to you. I have authority. God the Father has authority. I am sovereign over everything and everyone. You don't take my life. I lay it down freely. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. I am a king who rules over everything and everyone. You'll remember that Paul, when he was blessing God for his redemptive work, says of Jesus, in Christ we are chosen, Ephesians 1.11, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God rules. Jesus is a sovereign ruler over everything and everyone. Peter in the early church, Acts 4, verse 28, what is happening is happening because they, a reference to bad actors, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the Jews, they are gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God is sovereign. Jesus is God. He's the ruler over everything. And if he's dispatching the disciples to row, they better row. And if he's dismissing the crowd, they will be dismissed. Some of us are concerned about cultural currents. We wonder and fret about the future for our ministry, for our family, for our homes. Listen, Jesus is ruling. Jesus conquers culture. Jesus controls. He has the dominion and the power. His glory is forevermore. He rules, and we need to trust him. And in the midst of dark days, when we've been dispatched to row, and we've been rowing all night, going nowhere, what do you do when you don't know what to do? You keep doing what he told you to do. He compelled them to row across, verse 45. Verse 46, he bid them farewell, which is an affirmation that he was commissioning them to row. Followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ, Grace Community Church, you have been commissioned by God to deliver the good news of God. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples, baptizing teaching them all the things that I've commanded you. That's your commission. Titus chapter 3, do good works, engage in it, be ready. Good works, good news. 
That's your mission. What if it gets hard? That's your mission. Keep preaching, keep proclaiming, keep loving, keep doing. Honor the Lord, stay faithful, anchor in the reality that he's ruling. I think it's important to recognize that in this passage, you can obey and it's not always easy. I think as a Christian, we sometimes default to the idea that if it's hard, if the winds are not in the sail and the winds are not with us, I must be out of God's will. The disciples were not out of God's will. They were in the center of it. Was it hard? Was it dark? Did they want to quit? I got to believe they wanted to quit. But the message is obey. It is not always easy. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You do what anyone would do who believes that Jesus Christ is sovereign over the path, the process, the plan. Keep doing what he's commissioned you to do. That's how you stay faithful. Number two, a second lesson about our Lord. I think he would say at the debriefing meeting, I am human, and so are you. Here's a conviction. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is not only sovereign, he's human. And we need to do what he did. Look, don't miss these words about our master because he models what we ought to be prioritizing as a man in the midst of ministry. Notice what it says, verse 46, he departed to pray. After sending the multitude away, he departed to the mountain to pray. And then it went at verse 47, and when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, he was alone on the land. He departed to pray. He was alone on the land because he was doing what men do. In our humanity, we need to seek refreshing strength and intimacy with God the Father. Listen, listen to John 6, 15, parallel passage. Jesus again withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. Again, this is his pattern. Matthew 14, 23, sent the multitudes away, went up to the mountains alone to pray. Luke 5, 16, he himself, Jesus, would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Listen, Jesus in his humanity needed what men and women need, refreshing from the Father, relationship with the Father. There are some things you can't do in a crowd. This is one of them. There is something you can't do in a small group, even with committed disciples of Christ. This is one of them. This is you alone in an undistracted environment for the purposes of seeking what you don't have but what you desperately need, which is strength from heaven, refreshing life from the Father. Listen, there's a context for this, seeking solitude in the wilderness. And look at verse 30, chapter 6, the disciples, the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. About what? Their ministry, they had just left in They were commissioned in verse 7 to go out and preach. Take nothing, rely on God, do ministry. They're coming back together to report. There's an interlude, 14 through 29, 
speaking of a tragedy that happened while they were ministering. A report came. That report was that the forerunner of Jesus Christ, a beloved ally, had been executed and beheaded. Matthew's gospel says that when the disciples came, first of all, they took the body away, they buried John, and then they came and reported to Jesus. Not just the ministry they had done, but the loss of John's life. There was ministry fatigue. There was emotional loss and tragedy. There's physical fatigue. Read the text with me, verse 31. And he said, Jesus to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. You're tired. He commentates on that with this parenthetical, for there was many people coming, there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away to the boat, to, in the boat, to a lonely place by themselves. And just as they're getting down to vacation mode, the multitudes show up. The people find out where he is. He finds out, they find out where he is, and they gather again. And then you have the feeding of the 5,000. How are we going to do this? Ministry continues. Stress of ministry is realized. In the midst of ministry fatigue, in the midst of physical fatigue, in the midst of emotional loss and fatigue, you need to get alone with God. I do, and so do you. I think the second life lesson Jesus would say to his disciples, I need rest and refreshment, and you need rest and refreshment. I get tired and weary. I give and I get empty. I need time alone with the Father. I need to pray and commune one-on-one. I am human, and in my humanity, I need God. Listen, daily devotions is more than loving God by taking time daily for God. Daily devotions is being refreshed by God in communion with God alone. You want to stay faithful in the storm? You want to anchor in something? You need to recognize you need what He needed. You need to do what He did. You need to rest in Him and rest like Him. You need to rest in His rule, and you need to rest in your personal pursuit of strength you do not have. Rest in me. Act like me. Listen, don't look out. Don't fixate on Fox or the internet or whatever other news source you seek. Don't fixate on that. Don't look out. Look up. You need time with God, and if there's not time with God, if, there's, if it's not your custom to take time daily alone, to find solitude, to find intimacy, to seek strength, you won't stay faithful. You'll stop rowing. You'll justify leaving. If you're commissioned by God to be faithful in a home as a father or as a mother, as a husband or as a wife, if you're commissioned by God to be a pastor or a missionary, if you're called by God to do something for God, you will quit if you don't get what you do not have. You need to rest in His rule. He is sovereign. You can bank on that. He's in control of everything and everyone He's got a plan for you, both the timing of it and the unfolding of it. 
I don't know how it works. I just know that it is. I also know that you need to rest in him. Not his rule, but you need to rest like he did in his father and the strength and the wisdom that you need. Number three, in the heart of the passage. The third thing Jesus would say, and this is the centerpiece, I am God. Jesus is sovereign, Jesus is human, and Jesus is divine. And the purpose of this event, this long, dark night, rowing and going nowhere, is a purposeful event to undeniably and clearly confirm something the disciples had not been convinced of. Jesus Christ is God. He's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophesied one. He is pleroma, God in the flesh, the fullness of God dwelling in him in bodily form. The main goal of this passage is Jesus not relieving them in their difficulty, but revealing himself to them in their difficulty. I am God and I rescue. I am God and I can do anything, no matter how hard, how difficult, or supernatural it may appear. The truth is Jesus is God, and that's a hard lesson to learn. And you say, Harry, how do you know that? Well, because in John chapter 4, after Jesus asleep in the boat, the winds and the waves, winds blowing, waves crashing, boat apparently sinking, coming to Jesus and say, why are you sleeping? We're perishing. And Jesus awakens, stands, and says in his sovereign rule, hush, be still. Stop the wind, stop the waves, and in an instant it was calm. That's a supernatural, miraculous act. Wouldn't you agree? The disciples, in conclusion, say this. What kind of man is this? Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Or how about John or Mark chapter 5, 1 through 15? An uncontrollable, enslaved, dominated, demonically possessed man. You can't keep him in shackles. He's too strong. You can't control him. Nobody can deliver him. And then Jesus shows up. And with a word, Jesus sets him free, and they find him, this man, sitting, verse 15, clothed and in his right mind. So they've witnessed Jesus. Listen to the waves of evidence. They've witnessed him stop the unstoppable wind and waves, release the unreleasable, liberate the slave, and thirdly, they watch him heal the unhealable. This is Mark 5. Verse 29, a woman with the issue of blood, she spent all of her money trying to find benefit from the physicians. She'd spent all she had. She had nothing left. She's desperate. She reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, and the issue of blood, instantly she was healed. They witnessed that. Who touched me? Your faith has made you whole. The disciples heard it. They saw it. How about the synagogue official, Jairus, and his daughter? She's died. Jesus brings the inner inner circle, the three, Peter, James, and John, into the inner room. 
He tells the little girl who's dead, wake up, rise up. She rises up. She, he raises the unraisable. And then he feeds the unfeedable. 5,000 plus women and children. What should have happened by now? This is no ordinary man. He's doing what only God can do. But do you notice the commentary on this text, verse 52? I punctuated it when I read it. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves because their heart was hard. We would say they were boneheaded. Are you kidding me? Can you be a witness of that kind of reality and that kind of capacity and not draw conclusions that are so clear, apparently. So this event is all about that. This event is focused on a non-negotiable life lesson for every faithful disciple of Jesus Christ because this passage is rooted in the reality that they need to learn something that will carry them not only through this night, but all of the dark nights to come. And that is, Jesus is God. He does what God can do, and he rescues because he sees, he cares, he comes, and he comforts. That's the heart of the passage, and the key to understanding it, honestly, is the hardest part in it. Notice what is said in verse 48. At the end, seeing them straining, he came to them. Now listen, he saw them in the fourth watch of the night, 3 to 6 a.m., the darkest part of the night, no sunshine, no visible light. They are three to four miles out into the sea, the midst. John tells you how far they are. So not only is it the darkest part of the night, they're far out into the sea. And despite the darkness and despite the distance, he sees them. And the text says of them and seeing them, and that's a participle modifying a verb. It's a causal participle. Because he saw them. Because he saw them straining at the oars. The word strain is a, is a very vivid word. It's like they were tortured by a test. They're suffering. It's hard. And the wind's against them. So rowing for all they're worth, muscles straining, hearts beating, rowing all night, going nowhere, he sees them. And because he sees them suffering and struggling, Because he cares, main verb, he came to them. And he came to them walking on the sea. Now listen, that's something only God can do. Or someone that God enables to walk on the sea, because parallel passage, Matthew chapter 14, guess who gets to walk on the water for a little while? Somebody who believes Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus says, come. Peter begins to walk, and then he sees the wind and the waves. He begins to sink, and he knows what to say. Save me. Nobody walks on the water. Nobody enables anybody to walk on the water unless they are God. The troubling part of this passage and the most important part of it in terms of understanding it is what comes after he came to them walking on the sea. 
He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Does that bother anybody besides me? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. He's going to pass them by. What it does mean, he's going to display his unrivaled glory. There are two Old Testament texts that help you understand the pass-by purpose. One of those texts is in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Two Old Testament texts where pass-by is used, same word in the Septuagint, Parerchamai, pass-by, Old Testament, Exodus 33, pass-by event. Here's the context. The man of God, Moses, is on the mountain of God getting words from God. God is personally writing on tablets with his own finger his commandments. Moses comes down from the mountain, and the people of God, Aaron, his brother, has created an idol, a golden calf. They've exchanged the God for something not God, and they're throwing a party that was a pagan debauched exchange of apparent joy over the fact that they found a God and created one that they could find. Don't know where Moses is. Don't know where God is. We're going to take this. 3,000 die that day by the hand of the Levites. It's a bad day. It's a discouraging day. It's a disappointing day. It's a dark day. So dark that God says, I'm not going to lead these people. If I am among them, because of their stubbornness, they will die. And he says to Moses, his servant, you lead them. And Moses says, Exodus 33, 12, whom will you send with me? And God says, my presence shall go with you. And I want you to listen to these words, Exodus 33, 12 and I will give you rest. Your strength and rest is in my presence with you. How do I know you're going to go with me? You know this. How do I know this is going to happen? Please reassure me with affirmation. Show me your glory. So this is what the Bible says. Pass by event number one. I pray thee, show me thy glory. Verse 18, Exodus 33. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. All of his goodness has to do with his glorious perfections. All my undeniable capacities you're going to see pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Verse 21, the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me. You shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory, hear it, is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Chapter 34 records what is promised there as God's revealing and reassuring revelation of his person and power Chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. Now listen, it's got to be very frustrating if you're willing to shatter the handwritten words of God. I'm calling that a dark day. I'm calling that a desperate day. Moses shattered the words of God on the tablets of God. And God says, I want you to lead 
And I'm going to commission you and reassure you that I'm with you by passing by, displaying my glory. Listen to the words. So be ready by morning, God says, verse 2. Present yourself, therefore, to me on the top of the mountain. That's Mount Sinai. So Moses rose up early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand, and the Lord descended in the cloud, stood there with him as he called upon the name of Yahweh, and the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, Yahweh, God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He reveals himself. He passes by in the moment of difficulty to validate his identity and strengthen Moses for the journey. Pass by events are God's purpose places to reveal himself so that his disciples and those who lead on his behalf have the confidence that he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. Pass by event number two, 1 Kings 19. The subject is not Moses, it's Elijah. Elijah has had a wonderful day. He's defeated the prophets of Baal. Water's water's been poured on the sacrifices. Fire comes down from heaven. He wins the challenge. There is a God, the God of heaven. He kills the false prophets of Baal, 450. Then he goes and prays, and the drought of three years ends. It's a good day until Ahab, the king, the pagan Israelite king, tells his wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done, 1 Kings 19.1 and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, referring to the prophets of Baal that he killed with the sword. If I don't make you dead like they're dead by tomorrow about this time, the gods can do that to me. It's a threat. It's a real threat. Elijah receives this as a threat. He was afraid, verse 3, he rose and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. I want to die. I am so frustrated, so fearful, despite the victories, despite the evidence, the threat is great, the days are dark and I'm alone. I want to die. It is enough now. O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Listen, good people can get so discouraged they want to die. No created being of God should take their life, but it's not uncommon for creatures made by God to want him to take their life. It's that hard. So an angel shows up, provides food, says to Elijah, arise and eat. He eats, he sleeps, the angel shows up a second time, arise and eat, he eats, having slept, and then he goes to the mountain of God called Horeb, pass by event number two. Then he came to a cave, verse 9, 1 Kings 19, he came there to a cave and he lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I take the cave to be a hiding space. 
I'm alive. I'm not wishing for death, at least not at this moment. But I've run to a place where God is supposed to be, and I'm hiding in a cave. And God says to him, what are you doing here? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. That's his perspective. I'm all by myself. And they seek my life, and they want to take it away. I'm here because I'm afraid. I'm here because it's a difficult, dark day. I'm here because I don't believe I can keep doing what you've asked me to do. So listen to the words, verse 10 or verse 11. So he, that's Yahweh God, said to Elijah, the discouraged man of God, go forth, stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing And you know the story, strong wind, rending mountains, breaking pieces of rocks, but the Lord is not in the wind. Then there's an earthquake, an earth shake, he's not in that. There's a fire, a consuming fire, he's not in the fire, but after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing wind. Not a reflection of what he can do, but who he is, gentle. I want to argue that what Elijah needed was the display of divine glory in the midst of his difficulty. He needed to remember what we need to remember when it's hard and you want to die, you want to give up, your arms are aching, you want to stop rowing, you don't want to be faithful to the marriage or the ministry or to the home or to the family. You want to quit, you want to give up. What you need is what the disciples needed, what Elijah needed, what Moses needed, is for the glory of God to be put on display in your difficulty and to feel the kindness and the compassion and the gentleness of a great God who can do anything. And God says to Elijah, who when he heard God's gentle blowing, the sound of God's gentle blowing, he wrapped his face in a mantle. He went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Which is how it all started. This is not where you belong. I've shown you my glory. I've shown you my personality. Go back to doing what I called you to do. And I'm going to suggest to you and actually say to you that the Jesus intending to pass by was for the same purpose. I want to show you my undeniable glory. I want to show you my undeniable God-like capacity. I'm going to walk on the water and I'm going to say what only God would say. It is I is a translation, ego, I, a me, I am. If you look at Isaiah chapter 43, it would be similar to God saying, I am God, I am God alone, it is I. Jesus is saying, I am God. I do what only God can do. Job said it this way in Job 9, it is God who removes the mountains. It is God who overturns them in his anger. It is God who shakes the earth out of its place. And it is God alone who stretches out the heavens, verse 8, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. 
Jesus is putting an undeniable display of his glory in the darkest night they've had. And the purpose of that event is so that they would learn what they hadn't learned from the release of the unreleasable, the feeding of the unfeedable, the stopping of the unstoppable, the healing of the unhealable, the raising of the unraisable. I'm passing by so you get what you haven't gotten by what I'm doing and by what I'm saying. Matthew 14, verse 33, is the response of the disciples not given to us in Mark chapter 6. When Jesus got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. That's a far cry from, what kind of man is this? Who then is this that can cause the winds and the waves to stop? The training lesson was successful and non-negotiable. When Jesus comes strolling across the waters, he's revealing his unlimited power and capacity of God. This is a brilliant and glorious epiphany, a search it's a, it's a light bulb moment. Oh, what I hadn't gotten so far, I needed to have. And beyond his capacity, they need to understand that not only is he God, he rescues. He's a God who sees in the darkest part of the night. He sees what no one else can see. He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. His eyes are upon the ways of man. He sees all their steps, says Job. Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. He sees. Psalm 139, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Surely the darkness will overwhelm me, verse 11, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you in your dark night. God says, Jesus says, I see. Listen, before I close, I want to say to some of you, you're in a dark place. You're in a hard place. You're a single mom and you're tired and you're trying to be faithful to your responsibilities and you can be frustrated and and lonely. You're a tired and frustrated parent because you can't seem to realize the desired outcomes with your children. You're disappointed. There's fear. You feel impotent. Or you're a child in a home where you, you, feel, you have longing for affirmation and interest and you suffer neglect and sometimes emotional pain. You're an empty spouse where you're living in a marriage that's not life-giving. You're trying to be faithful or you're a breadwinner and you're fearful and you're vulnerable because you're tired, you're discouraged. You're sick, you're weak, you're physically vulnerable, you got the diagnosis you didn't expect, you didn't want the one who can help and support sees you. He knows your weakness. He knows your circumstance. He knows your vulnerability and he cares. He sees and he comes because he cares and he rescues 
with his presence. He came to them with his words, take courage, it is I, be not afraid. With his power, he gets into the boat and the wind stops. I love it in John 6, parallel passage. As soon as he got into the boat, when he was received in the boat, John 6, 21, and immediately the boat was at land at which they were going. I want to conclude this way. Every faithful disciple has a non-negotiable core conviction. Jesus is God, and he rescues. You need to obey when it's not easy. Challenges have a purpose. And I'm going to argue so that you can see him in ways that you desperately need to learn things about him. Trials are not just to train you, they're to reveal things about God to you. And the darker the trial, the greater the glory. In difficult and hard places, you're prone not to recognize him. They didn't. We may not. Look and learn. Stay awake and listen. This for the disciples and those who face adversity those who feel separated from Jesus, distressed in the rowing of life, those who are tempted to give up or give in, know that Jesus is for you. He sees you, and he will come and comfort you in his sovereign time and way. Listen to Charles Spurgeon, morning and evening, July 19, in the morning. Spurgeon writes, quote, among the huge ocean waves of difficulty, bereavement, poverty, temptation, and reproach, we learn the power of Jehovah because we feel the littleness of man. Thank God, then, if you have been led by a rough road. It is this which has given you your experience of God's greatness and loving kindness. Your troubles have enriched you with a wealth of knowledge to be gained by no other means. Your trials have been the cleft of the rock in which Jehovah has set you as he did and shown himself as he did to his servant Moses, that you might behold his glory as it passed by. He concludes, praise God that you have not been left in the darkness and ignorance which continued prosperity may bring but rather that in the great affliction you've been capacitated for the outshinings of his glory and you get to witness his wonderful dealings with you. Can you say amen? Faithfulness is rooted in non-negotiable convictions. It rests in his rule. It refreshes in his presence. It recognizes his identity And it always remembers, no matter how dark it is, he rescues. Father, I thank you this morning for the treasure of your word and the hope that it brings. Lord, I thank you for reminding us of who you are and how much you care. Jesus, by faith we believe and by choice we want to testify and trust Even in the darkest days, we want to be faithful as a testimony to your authority and capacity. Lord, show us your glory. 
Remind us of your presence and care. And Lord, we want to honor you today, not because we necessarily feel good, but because you are good. Strengthen our heart. Use our need, our desperation, our fear, our fatigue, our distress. Use it as a stage for your glory and to reveal the one that we call Jesus, the greatest and the best. Give us eyes to see and hearts to believe. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.